Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ENC podcast. Uh, my name is David Young. I'm the chaplain here at ENC, and today I am joined by my co-host, Pastor Steve Kent, pastor of the Wollaston Church of the Nazarene here on, on the campus of ENC, and also our special guest, Dr. Esau McCauley, who is the author of Reading While Black, African American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. So very glad to have you both here today and, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, glad you could be here. This is a real honor and privilege and really excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, Dr. McCauley, I wondered if you could just start us off today telling us just a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, where you're from, tell us something about the work that you do um, and just what your passion is. What are you passionate about? Um, well, I, I was born in Huntsville, Alabama, so I'm a Southerner. And I still claim the South as, as a tradition in a world to shape me. But Nothing I currently, wrong with that. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, by the way. So yes. fellow, fellow Southerner here. I'm currently exiled to the Midwest where <laughs> I teach. I'm the assistant professor of New Testament here at Wheaton College. Uh, I also uh, do a lot of um, kind of, I, would, I don't know what you would call it, maybe popular writing. So I have a, a monthly column roughly every month uh, in the New York Times. Also write for Christianity Today, um, the religious news service and the Washington Post. So I do that and I try to be a decent husband and a father to our four kids. And I think that's about it. I'll, I'll, yes, obviously I teach, I teach kids the Bible, um, college students the Bible, which is great because as the listeners probably know, college students don't read newspapers. <laughs> so um, they have no idea about the two careers. They kind of live in two separate worlds. So I'm a Bible professor during the day. And then in the evenings and weekends, I try to slide in the occasional um, newspaper article. That's your uh, your superhero role you put on your cape and yeah it's like it's like Superman you, you can have glasses. I don't even need a disguise because like students are like what's a newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> If I got a TikTok, then maybe I would get a little street cred, but I get nothing yeah. for what I currently do. Then they knew who you were. Yeah. Uh, Dr. McCauley, uh, it's a privilege to be able to share with you today. And uh, first of all, um, just wanted to thank you for the book, uh, Reading Well Black. Uh, I think it's been had a good impact on the circles that I've been involved with. And uh, I was just wondering if you could think or share a little bit about what you felt like motivated you to write this book. Oh, yeah. So I think that I was, well, a lot of things. I mean, on one level, they, th they talk about musicians and when musicians have, like they put their first album out and a lot of ways that could be their best album because it's the album they've been wanting to write their whole life. So you kind of, you have a whole life of stories that you got to present um, in that first album. And then after that, you got to find something to say for the rest of your career. So in a sense, reading my black is the fruit of a lifetime of struggle but trying to make sense of what it meant to be black and Christian in America. So on one level, the book is a theodicy. It's trying to make sense of like God in the midst of the things that happens with being black and Christian. But the particular circumstance that led to the writing of this book, there were two things. One is I was finishing my PhD. And, and a lot of people who've written PhDs, or maybe Dr. or Pastor Young, whatever they call you there, but I'll say Dr. Young, um, might know is that you write a book that nobody's gonna read. And you know when you're writing it, nobody's going to read it. It's going to cost $100, and nobody's going to read it except for a select group of academics. You preach it now. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so nobody, it's funny, because y'all didn't come to invite me for the interview for my for my yeah. dissertation. 
<laughs> people say it's his debut book. I was like, no, I wrote one that just yeah, nobody right. knows about. <laughs> right, right. And so I was coming to the end of that book and I realized like nobody who grew up like I grew up was ever going to read the book. And I had this sense of I wanted something that my mom could read and my friends, my neighborhood could potentially read. So that was part of it. But another one was this growing sense of dis-ease that I was seeing in the culture, especially around the discourse in Black Christian circles, or actually just Black circles, broadly speaking, not necessarily Christian circles, where I grew up in the context of the civil rights movement. Now, I didn't grow up during the civil rights movement. I grew up in the aftermath of the civil rights, civil rights movement. So my heroes are people like Martin Luther King, Mega Everest, Fannie Lou Hamer. And so for me, it was always this idea that part of living it out your faith as a black Christian in the South was contending for justice. And so I just saw a lot of people during kind of starting in 2000, really 2015, 2016, protesting for justice. And they were saying, I just heard things like, this is not your parents' civil rights movement. We're gonna do something different. And there was this sense that in certain circles, there was this assumption that in order to be for justice, you had to in some sense, like reject Christianity or at least deconstruct it in a certain way. And I said, well, hold on. I grew up in a context in which it was just normal that because you love Jesus, that you cared about how the world treated image bearers. And so I wanted to write a book in particular for like black people who are, you know, maybe between the ages of like 18 and 30, who are coming in an age in a world who are asking the question of, does Christianity have something relevant to say to the things we're experiencing as black people in America? Now, what I couldn't like foresee at the time was that black people weren't going to be the only people who were asking that question. And one of the reasons why I think the book has resonated um, really well is because it's for a certain kind of person. And people should probably understand this. I'm not trying to convince people of anything. So I don't need to, I don't like argue that America's bad or that, you know, that I don't argue any of the stuff, right? I say, granted those things, how do we make sense of being Christian in America? And there's a lot of people who said, yeah, they can kind of look around and see the brokenness in society. And they were looking for something that said, hey, how do I make sense of being Christian in America, given these realities? So something that was intended to be a, a particular word of hope to a community under siege has become a, wor a, a word of hope to a much wider community, which is fine for me because the word that I, the word of hope that I was given wasn't limited to black people because it's the hope that arises from the gospel. Well. But it was just to that community. But the, but the gospel is the same Jesus who speaks a word of hope to black people can speak a, a word of hope to anybody. If I could just follow up with something you mentioned there, uh, and you shared it as well in the video that you sent ahead of time, um, that advocating for those of us who are Christ followers, advocating for social justice or social transformation is not in conflict, you know, with the personal invitation to, to faith and renewal and those kinds of things. I'm curious what you might say to someone who would argue that those things are mutually exclusive, that one is the true essence and the other is secondary. Well, one of the things is, and maybe this is another thing that um, that makes my book unique. I'm not a sociologist, right? I'm a biblical scholar, and so I don't say I don't. That doesn't mean that everything that I say about the Bible is correct. But I begin with what the biblical text says, and so one of the things we're not allowed to do, I think, as Christians, is edit the Bible. 
And if you just read Isaiah, we just talk about Isaiah. Like if you read the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah says to Israel over and over and over again, hey, you guys are idolaters. You aren't worshiping the one true God. Isaiah says that like 50,000 times. Isaiah also says things like, well, do you get up early in the morning and drink wine and shed blood? So he goes, you know what? You have two problems. One, you're not worshiping the one true God. Two, you're kind of personally immoral. You're, you're, you're getting drunk all of the time and you're, and, you're, and you're people of violence. He says, there's a third problem. This is this in Isaiah. So you don't need to know Greek, Hebrew, Latin, German, whatever you want to do. He says, hey, Israel, you know, you got a, got a problem. You step on poor people, right? And you mistreat the foreigner and the widow and the oppressed. Isaiah says, it's not Greek, not Hebrew, just Isaiah 58. So if Isaiah can say, you need to worship the one true God, you need to live lives of holiness, and, and you need to care about how we treat the poor, then it's part those three things. Now, it also becomes really important. They're probably one of the most quoted prophets when you get to the New Testament is who? Isaiah. And Jesus, in his ministry, in his first sermon, picks up Isaiah that draws together a lot of those threads. And then when you see Jesus' own ministry, where Jesus calls people to repent, shows compassion upon the oppressed, and speaks about personal holiness. So if Jesus can do it, and Isaiah can do it, then we as the church can do it. Now, one of the things that people often say about this, and this is important to kind of make sure we think this through biblically, People will say, well, Isaiah is speaking to the covenant people. So like the, the, the king in Israel, of course, he's supposed to treat the, the poor in a certain way, but we're dealing with a secular government. But then you start having to do things like two things. One, you got to look at the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is judged in Daniel chapter four for two reasons. When he's driven mad in the story, Nebuchadnezzar is judged, one, for his arrogance. He put himself in the place of God. But the other reason that Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar is judged is that he mistreated the poor. So God seems to expect Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, who's not a part of the covenant, to treat people in a certain way. You also see the exact same thing if you start looking beyond what is happening in Daniel in, in Isaiah, when Isaiah is criticizing Israel. There's this whole section of Isaiah where Isaiah is criticizing all the foreign nations. And he goes, all of y'all are subject to God's judgment for your wickedness. Another thing we need to see is when you get to the book of um, Revelation. And in Revelation, when Babylon, which is described as Rome, is judged for its sins, one of the sins that Babylon is judged for is for its trade in human beings. And so there's a, a line throughout the Bible where regardless of who you are, whether you are a pagan or you are a covenant king, God seems to expect, or, or, look, whether, whether you're Israel or Judah, whether you're from the line of David or somewhere else, it doesn't matter who you are. God holds you to a standard as a ruler for how you treat your people because the people are, are your are stewardship. And if you don't, God sends prophets to you to say, hey, you're subject to God's judgment. And so this idea then that somehow as Christians now, the only job for us to do is to tell people about Jesus and say nothing about how society 
treats people seems to me to run up against Jesus's own ministry. If we had time, we would talk about Paul's ministry, John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, and the Old Testament prophets. And so the real question isn't really to me, like the question is like, what gives us the authority to edit the Bible? And I just don't think that we do. I just don't think that, I just don't think that we do. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, and he says, teach them to obey everything that I have taught you, right? So basically the Great Commission, you go and make disciples. So that means you teach the, you teach the disciples everything that I taught you. Mm. Well, then that begins to ask the question, what does Jesus teach his disciples? And what do you see in the gospel stories? So anything that happens in the gospel stories is related to Jesus, his posture and ministry. We don't get to just say, well, we don't do that anymore. The, the Jesus's first sermon still stands. Right. John the Baptist. I know this is like too much Bible. It's supposed to be a 20 minute podcast, but you asked the wrong question. John the Baptist, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. He's preaching repentance to prepare for the kingdom of God. And they ask John, the different groups come to John and say, what must we do? And he says to the um, soldiers, stop extorting people, right? And be content with your wages. No more false accusations. Why does that matter as it relates to the question that you ask? Well, then if a soldier in, that, in the first century was the equivalent to a police officer, and you know if the soldier who's collecting taxes can say, hey, listen, you can either give me some extra money or you can find yourself accused of a crime. You have nobody who's going to advocate for you because you're broke, right? So you need to you need to kind of grease, you need to give the, the soldier a little bit of extra money so that you can then function in Israel. There was no legal recourse. The soldier had all the power. And so John says to the soldier, hey, you, and you live in a society that gives you certain power. You're taking advantage of that power to exploit the poor. John doesn't just say, hey, you know what? You should just you know, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus or and trust in the coming Messiah. John says, you need to change your practices that are exploitative, right? So what, what is that other than saying, like, so mm -hmm. if that is a part of, the, of, the, of what it means to be a part of the kingdom, how can, a, how can a, the soldier get ready for the kingdom? Change how he uses power to oppress the poor. So then I'm going to go out into society modeling what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. In God's coming kingdom, these people who have power in society and use that power to oppress the poor, I modeling, I'm trying to do what John did. And John's the forerunner of Jesus. And so what I want to say is that we have to be careful. If we're going to say the Bible is God's word to us, then we need to learn how to follow what it actually says. And this is not, like I said, not, not, not fancy Greek or Hebrew. These are, these are truths that is laying on the surface of the text. Mm. Yeah, Dr. McCauley, I, re I really appreciate that response for a couple of reasons. One is because the folks that I go to church with, they've, they've learned that if they're going to ask me a Bible question, they better buckle up and, you know, be ready uh, for, for a long response, right? Yeah. So it's like, I got a question. I got a Bible question for you. All right, how much time you got? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so, I mean, we, we think that we have, we have developed certain postures that we think are biblical that literally withstand no biblical scrutiny. So, for mm -hmm. example, 
Jesus says, you know, they ask Jesus, what is the first great commandment? Jesus says, love God. And then the second one is like unto it, love your neighbor. And so we say, okay, then, well, then the really important one is to love God and loving your neighbor is kind of secondary. Well, the reason that Jesus put the two together is so that like, you shouldn't pull those things apart. And that God expects you to be able to do one and the other, love God, mm -hmm. love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And even when they begin to ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus showed, what does it look like to be a neighbor to someone who's in need? So if we can't like step back from that pattern, mm -hmm. begin to ask, well, what does it mean for a Christian in a democratic republic to be a neighbor to people? Then I don't think we're taking like our vocations as Christians and, you know, the 21st year of our Lord in the, in, in the year 2000 in the mm -hmm. 2000s so that's what i would say right and i think i think the other thing that i really appreciate about that response is that you know i think often at least in the sort of church circles that i've been a part of most of my life you know if you start talking about social justice or you know racial justice or whatever the case may be you know people say well why are you why are you adding that on to the gospel Right. That's not yeah. that's not the gospel. You're so, adding something on. What, what, but, he, he, here's the thing. And, and this is what people really, really want to. This is like a subtle shift in the conversation. Because people talk about adding to and subtracting from the gospel. And I want to be careful about how this rhetorically sets people up. Mm -hmm. You don't have to download everything into the word gospel for it to be the Christian like response. So, for example, Paul would say, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. Right. And if you want to accept Jesus, this is what you need to do. But Paul also writes in his letters about sexual morality. And no one says, hey, Paul, why are you talking about sexual morality? You should just focus on the gospel. Mm -hmm. Paul also says something about how we should parent our children. We don't say, hey, Paul, don't add to the gospel. Paul also says something about how marriage is out of work. Paul also has a collection that he that he, he goes around and gets. And so we tend to say, that the only thing the Christians talk about are is the gospel. But the but like that is a like I talk about the Christian tradition. And so I don't have to download everything into the world got into the word gospel to make it a, a worthy topic of Christian discourse. Mm -hmm. What I have to say is it is something that God deals with in his word. I mean, there's tons of things that God talks God talks about healthy work life. I mean, like God talks about all kinds of things, right? Talk, he, God, God talks about like, you know, the heaven declaring the glory of God and the idea that the Christians can, can that the human being can look into the, into the sky and, and, and see the beauty of what God has made. And part then of the Christian, of, of the Christian protecting this ability to see God's glory is kind of came for creation as a natural result of our stewardship. We were given the earth to work and to till it. So I can say, hey, in the Bible, it says that work is good. It's created by God. Part of it is the stewardship over creation. That doesn't mean that I'm adding to the gospel. So every single thing that is true, that is a part of Christian discipleship, does need not be downloaded into the word gospel. Now, when I say that, though, the other thing is, if you want to be technical about how the gospel language is used, the gospel language in, can I say something? This is the New Testament scholar. Paul's gospel language, Paul and the, and the New Testament uses gospel language in a variety of ways. Sometimes Paul does use the language of gospel to refer to how we're saved. 
So for example, in Galatians, when Paul says you're abandoning the gospel for a different gospel, he's talking about two different accounts of how you get right with God. One that includes trusting in Jesus and the other one that includes the works of the law. But that same Paul also uses the word gospel to refer to the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the son of God, who's the messianic king who rules over all things. I'm thinking, for example, of Romans chapter one, where Paul says the gospel that was preached before, that was written beforehand in the scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was declared, who was the sinner of David, declared to be the son of God and power by the resurrection of the dead. So there's two gospel, there's two ways in which the word gospel is used in the New Testament. One is the proclamation of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So the gospel can stand in as a short, as a shorthand for proclaiming Jesus Christ is king of the world and his kingdom is rooted in justice and righteousness. When you have that definition of gospel, all of the other stuff gets added in. Justice, righteousness, holiness, transformation of life, all of that stuff. The kingdom encompasses a lot. But gospel also refers to as a shorthand what it means to enter that kingdom. And so, yes, if you're talking about gospel in the terms of what does it mean for us to become Christians, then you're right. It doesn't include everything that a Christian might want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you're using gospel in the way that Jesus refers to it himself in his own ministry, the good news of the kingdom of God, then it does actually include some of the things that we say that are left out. But I don't need to fight that battle. I don't need to fight the battle to say that this use of gospel is the predominant one and that how do we get saved used to gospel is the derivative from that. Because you actually see how those things are, are, are close to one another. If the gospel is the good news of the kingdom, then part of the good news of the kingdom is how you get into the kingdom. And how do you get into the kingdom by trusting in Jesus? So they're not two totally different. They're overlapping kind of ideas, but I don't need to do that. I need to say, is it true? And if it's true, then we don't get to edit it down. Jesus doesn't say, only tell people the path of salvation. Jesus literally said, teach them to obey the things that I taught you. And if we're going to take the New Testament seriously, we got to take all of, I mean, the gospel, and, and this is, I know when I'm trying, I want people to understand how we can say things to sound pious but make no theological sense. Paul also talks about church order and the spiritual gifts, that you can't download that into the gospel. Paul says all kinds of stuff that are just part of what it means to be a Christian. He talks about worship, right? So, like, we can't say as a coherent Christian body, that the only thing that we talk about or care about is the gospel. And I can say that without decentering the centrality of God's gracious gift of salvation that comes to us because we trust in Jesus. And trust me, as someone who has been rescued and transformed by Jesus, y'all are not going to tell me that because I care about poor people, I don't have a personal relationship with God. Because I talked to him. I spoke to him this morning during morning prayer. We had a good conversation about the matter. <laughs> and so I just want to make sure that one of the things that happens, and I don't think this is right. I don't think this is right. And I don't think that people should do this. And I think it's a mistake. But a lot of young people are saying, something deep within me leads me to be passionate about these things. And if you say that I'm a bad Christian because I care about these things, and I won't be a Christian. Now that's a mistake. It's a mistake. I don't think they should do that. Well, my if I have a ministry vocation 
it is to say to young people, you're not crazy to care about this stuff. And caring about this stuff can and should be a manifestation of your faith in Jesus. That's so good. Thanks. Yeah, so I think one of the things that I appreciate a lot about both what you've shared today and also what you do in your book is how you are able to hold together, as you kind of were just talking about, hold together things that folks so often seem to want to separate. Um, and we've, we've talked about some of those things already, right? Like personal holiness and, and a, call, a call to justice. I think another one of the things you identify um, is you say on the one hand that part of what you're trying to do in your book is to say this, this reading of scripture is going to be both orthodox and canonical. And yet it also is going to be in this patient dialogue specifically with African-American experience. Yeah. And so as you um, think about that, I'm curious, what do you, what do you think we miss on either side of that equation? Yeah. If we, if we don't hold those things together. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that I want to say is all of us, and, and, and this really isn't, controversial but it just becomes controversial when american racial politics get put into play so anyone who's taken and i'm hoping that some of you i'm hoping that y'all teach the reformation there in eastern nazarene <laughs> but or even like you know wesley's um um conversion and insight no one just stops and says here's what wesley says they go here are the things that were going on in england that led to wesley doing the things that wesley did or here are the things that were going on in Germany that led to Luther's insights. So Luther didn't just like sit in a vacuum and come up with these ideas. There are certain corruptions that were going on. They were in a sense unique to Germany during the period preceding the Reformation. Wesley, I know, was dealing with the own kind of dryness and seeming like deadness of the Church of England at the time. So we say, okay, these are things that are going on in these contexts, which led Wesley on one hand and Luther on the other to ask certain questions that led to certain insights that became these two traditions. And so in other words, both Wesley and Luther are influenced by their context, but that, that inf the influence of their context did not prevent them from saying things that are true. We can both be influenced by our context, but our context can lead us to have unique insights into what God says in his word. So Luther comes to the Bible with a particular set of questions raised by his experiences in Germany. What he sees in the Bible is actually what is there, right? And so if that is true of both Germany and England at certain periods of time, then the same thing can be true of what happens to African-Americans in the United States. That, that the experiences of Black people in this country, especially in relation to racism and justice and oppression, can lead us to the Bible with certain questions. But the important part about that, which I think remains central, is the authority of the scriptures. If we're determined totally by our social context, then the Bible just becomes this putty in our hands and we can make God in our own image. But if we come to the Bible saying that the Bible is God's words, word to us for our good, then we can ask God any question that we want, trusting he will give us a faithful response in return. And so what it, the reason these, these two things are important is the Bible isn't simply, if, if it's only social location in our experiences, the Bible isn't simply the place where I process all of my trauma and I make it say whatever I wanted to say to get whatever end that I want. It's that the Bible itself has to shape the responses to the things that I experience. And so it needs to be a tension between 
these two different realities. And one of the things that is encouraging is how often people from different contexts come to similar conclusions about who God is. So black people aren't the only people who've ever said that God, you know, is a God of justice who cares about liberation. That's seen by oppressed peoples all throughout time and across culture, because the witness of those texts is the, is the same. Now, if it is true that our social location can sometimes help us as readers, it is also true that our social location can sometimes hinder us as readers. In the simply a matter of fact that we look back on the, the, the things that were justified, the Crusades, right? We look back on the period of slavery. We go, how could all of these people clearly get it wrong as to what God wanted to do in the world? It's because their greed and these other things distorted their reading of the scripture. And so I think we all recognize that there are times in which communities can get together. I tell, let me give you, let me give you one example for all college students. And this may get me in trouble, it may, want, it may not. College students, and, and, and much love to y'all young people who are out there in the streets. Um, when I was, I did youth ministry, I did college ministry. And I will tell you this, whenever somebody gets a girlfriend or a boyfriend, they're all of a sudden got all kinds of questions about what Paul actually said. They, you know, like their, their reading changes. Like what? What? What did that actually? What is? What is lust actually? Right? <laughs> so they, <laughs> and why? Why are they asking these questions with fresh intensity and nuance? Right? It is because their current experiences are causing them to revisit what they thought the Bible was clear about. And and what I'm saying is that's that's how our desires right can distort a reading of the text. So our desires can eat, can sometimes distort our experiences. What we want to be true, we can make the Bible say it. But sometimes our social location can help us as readers. That our experiences can force us to see things that we had not we had neglected before. And so when I talk about reading while black, I'm just talking about the the, the unique insights that growing up. Actually, I would like to say it this way. It's not that our black skin makes us certain readers or interpreters of the Bible. That's a silly thing to think. But being black in America leads to sometimes some common experiences, which sometimes lead to common questions. And then there's a certain responses to those questions that kind of grow up and take shape in the black community. And so reading about black just means I bring the, the, the questions that arise from me being black in America to the biblical text, trusting that God can give me a good answer to them. Yeah, that is that is just so helpful, uh, and I love the example, obviously, of how uh, love the young people falling in love. Just keep. Yeah, that's together. right. Our our <laughs> questions, our questions of of the Bible are driven by our current experience, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. McCauley, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an excellent conversation. I know I've enjoyed it very much, and it's been an honor to have you on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much, and um, have well. Hopefully I can say have a happy Easter. Maybe it'll be too far after Easter when they, everyone sees this. But hopefully you have, uh, you've had a good Holy Week and an Easter mm -hmm. by the time you all, you hear this. And blessings on finishing a very difficult and complex pandemic year. Mm -hmm. I can tell you students and anyone who's listening, um, these trials shape us into the kind of people that we can be. And that which doesn't break us, turns us into the types of people who can face whatever the world throws at us and god that is not god has not abandoned you he will be faithful he will be with you to the end godspeed and hopefully you all will have a wonderful and a less pandemic determined summer amen
Yeah, that's a great word, Hope, to end on. Well, thank you, Pastor Steve, for joining us today. Thanks, Dr. McCauley, for joining us. Thanks to all our listeners for listening in. Hope everybody has a great day. Thanks a lot. Thank you.